It's good to be back with you again, and I uh, always look forward to coming up here to Rock Hill, spend a little time with uh, the church up here, and good to see everyone here today. Um, we're looking forward to a very near future to have Mark ordained, and uh, so just keep that in your mind, especially whenever that event comes, if you can plan to come to Columbia and be a part of that service whenever we do that. We'll let you know ahead of time, enough time ahead to do so, because that was going to be a very important part of the history of your church here, and uh, looking forward to that process. So today what I'd like to do is have you open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4, James chapter 4, and uh, in our church we've been going through this book for a little while now. I think I've now spent, including this message, seven messages in chapter 4 working our way down through verse 10. And what we've been talking about is this problem that James addresses here of how a church or a believer can become an enemy of God. We went some time through that first portion of the text of James 4, addressing that in great detail. And now what we're talking about is how to stop being a friend of the world. James 4, verse 7 through 10, calls us to repentance. It calls us to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us and to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts, to lament and mourn and weep. So let me read the text here, James 4, verse 7 and following. The word of God says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In January of 1933, Hitler had been installed as the Chancellor of Germany. But there was a young man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who had not been seduced by the Fuhrer's intentions. He gave a radio address and warned the people not to idolize their leader. In that context, he said this, Then the image of the leader will graciously become the image of the misleader. He also said that the leader makes an idol of himself and mocks God. Before the last sentences of that broadcast were given, Bonhoeffer's microphone had been mysteriously switched off. But Bonhoeffer went on to continually to warn the church of that day not to listen to the leadership of Hitler. And that the church had only one altar which it was to bow down and worship to, and that was the altar of the Almighty. But Bonhoeffer also warned that if the church should substitute any other lord than the Lord Jesus himself, or if the cross was replaced with another cross, that the gospel would be betrayed and the church would be judged. Or another way of saying that is, is that the church would become the enemy of God. Bonhoeffer saw clearly what we in America have yet to grasp. Erwin Lutzer, in a book that he wrote a few years ago, entitled, When a Nation Forgets God, wrote these words. That for us as Christians, the conflict really is between humanism and Christianity. Or, 
an alternative religion and Christianity. On one side is the deteriorating culture, and on the other side of the divide is the cross of Christ, which is message of hope and redemption. What Lutzer was doing is drawing a needed line between the compromise of the world, the ungodly moral decline of the world, the ideologies of the world, and the need of the church to remain pure, and the need of the church to remain unattracted to the world. But the world system that we all know today, today, with all of its allurements and its seductive ideologies, has its claws very, very deep into the church. In fact, it's had it there for some time. The church was seduced decades ago, and now for the most part, we are seeing a church and a people of God that are parrots of the world. There's little difference in their conduct and little difference in the thinking of most Christians today when it comes to the world. And whenever you introduce a biblical worldview to most Christians, they recoil in disbelief. We are called the extremist among the church. And we're called the extremist by the church for just believing the word of God and practicing the word of God. I mean, if you name any issue of morality or philosophy or ecumenical ideology or methodology, I grant you, you can find a number of believers, professing believers, who have firmly planted themselves in the belief of this godless age. We didn't get here overnight. overnight. The church has cast away her God for idols. And we are coming quickly upon a time of intense persecution that all of us need to begin to prepare ourselves for. And what I mean by that is not the kind of persecution of the past where believers were taken out and burned at the stake for believing the word of God. What I'm talking about is the time whenever you and I as believers will be canceled. We're going to be canceled in the marketplace. We're going to be suffering financially because of our beliefs. More and more, Christians are becoming isolated for their belief in the word of God and the practice of it. In other words, we're going to be the ones that are the insensitive bigots who have hate speech. Whenever you speak out against the moral decline of our culture or you speak against the ones who want to destroy our culture, and yet at the same time, what is interesting is, is that the tables have been turned because now what is happening is, is that those that we consider conservative Protestant Christians are being painted as the enemy. We are the ones now that are the ones that are destroying the country, they say, instead of the moral decadence and denial of the word of God and the life of a Christian, they are saying that you and I as believers are the ones who are the enemies of the state. And we are becoming rapidly the targets of the state regarding that. I think it's also interesting to make this point that there's going to be a lot of believers and a lot of churches that will have no effect by this whatsoever. They are already fully compromised and fully capitulating to the ideologies of the culture and are more than willing to follow suit. But there are a number of churches, and this is one of them, that will not. And as a result of that, you're going to find yourself as being the center of the target. They're coming after you. 
and they're coming after your family, and they're coming after your children. And even as I said to our church this morning, because the majority of our church into the high 90s, as far as percentage is concerned, homeschool their children. And I grant you that because you do that, they're looking at you as one of the problems. And they're coming after you. Just wait and see. So, with that said, if there's any time that I believe the church should be standing up for the things of God, it should be now. In the deepest, darkest times, this is not a time for the church to be asleep. We're not to be slumbering. We should not be finding ourselves in a place where we don't care. We should be repenting of our lack of enthusiasm for the Word of God, and we should be repenting of our somber sleep. So with that said, James says here that he says to the church that he's writing to that you and I should draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Now this is not really a call to worship, although it is an act of worship to draw near to God. But in the context here, what he's talking about is repentance. Because this group of believers in James' letter have left their true affection and loyalty to God. They've walked away from that. He even calls them in verse 4 adulterers because they had, find, they had found their affections to be more for the things of the world and the world system than for the God that had saved them. So he even says in verse 4 that they are those who have made friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. And they were an enemy of God as a result of that. And he made that very, very clear to them. So as a result of this, he is calling on them to repent of this affection for the world. This love of the things of the world. He says in verse 7 that they should submit to God and resist the devil. In fact, that introduces to us in verse 7 through 10, 10 commandments that he gives. All of these are imperatives. They're not suggestions. He's calling on the church and rightly so, and should be called on the church today to repent of their love of this world system and to understand the need to stand and to stand firm for the things of God in a culture that is dark. So in the first part of verse 7, he says, Therefore submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. That commandment really is the overarching commandment of all of the commandments here. How you submit to God and how you resist the devil is done in verse 8 by drawing near to God. And by that, he draws near to you. Well, how do you do that? Well, you cleanse your hands because you're coming into the presence of God in repentance and you purify your hearts. You double-minded, which means double-souled, or the ones that are uh, affected by and affectionate for the world and then claiming to have the same affection for God, you're a double-minded person. As James says in chapter 1, you are unstable in all of your ways as a result of that. You say, well, how do you cleanse your hands and purify your hearts? Well, you lament, mourn, and weep over your sin. That's where it starts. It starts with an attitude of the heart. And you let your laughter about your sin and your position to be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And in verse 10, it starts with humility, a recognition that you are not the sole sovereign of your universe. 
that in fact you should be willing to humble yourself in the sight of God and submit to him and to recognize your sin in his presence and to come and follow him with full, complete allegiance. So in those Ten Commandments, he really addresses the need of repentance to the church. He's calling on them to return to God is what he's doing. It's kind of strange to think of that the church could drift so far away that there would be the need to call the church back to God. But brothers and sisters, that has happened throughout history. I mean, Israel is a good example of that, how often they drifted away to idols, drifted away to the immorality of the pagan nations around them, and then were taken into the captivity by God's discipline and called to come back. Like Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. Zechariah 1, 3 says this, that the Lord says, Return to me, and I will return to you. This was a consistent pattern in Israel's history. And sad to say, when you read the history of the churches, especially the New Testament churches, the pattern seemed to remain the same. So James says to them, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, the other thing he says in this text that we covered in our church was that you need to resist the devil. And the resistance of the devil has nothing to do with casting the devil out or trying to follow him around or trying to pursue him or looking for demons behind every corner or behind every bush. This resistance of the devil basically boils down to standing firm in the word of God and the faith which you hold. Resisting his influence, resisting his, uh, his indoctrination, resisting his teaching, as Paul called on one occasion the doctrine of demons. And how you do all of this, how you begin to do all of this, drawing near to God and resisting the devil, is found in the next part of the verse, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is so essential for you and I to understand. If we as believers who have been affected by the world are going to come back to God, if the church is going to come back to God the way she should, then it must begin with cleansing your hands. You have to start there. In fact, the cleansing here is... The washing of hands, as it's stated here, the Greek is very, very vivid. In fact, it's very emphatic the way that James wrote this. He did not include um, possessive pronouns, and he did not include definite articles. And what I mean by that there, there is no thee there, and there's no possessive pronoun like your hands or your hearts. If you were to read the actual text literally, word for word, in the original Greek text, it would read this way, cleanse hands sinners purify hearts double-minded what james is doing is this he's drawing attention to this text he's drawing attention to the need to cleanse your hands without even saying the word your it's like pushing it announcing it in many ways screaming it to the people that he's writing to that they need, they need to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts the word translated here, cleanse, is an important word. We find it throughout the New Testament. Katharizo is the Greek word. It simply means to cleanse or to make pure or to remove from any kind of contamination. If you look at the word cathartic in the, uh, new, the English dictionary, you're going to find that the first definition of that is to have a cleansing of the bowels. That's the idea for cathartic, to remove any kind of impurity. 
And so he's asking us to cleanse our hands or to remove any kind of defilement from our hands. And of course, he's not talking about a literal washing. He's not talking about the kind of washing where you would wash your hands before you eat. He's talking about a spiritual cleansing. Now, there was clearly in the Jewish culture a washing that was ceremonial. In fact, to the Jewish mind that he's writing to here, they would have clearly thought of this. They would have thought back to Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, where it says, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water. And when they go into the tabernacle, and when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn an offering made in fire before the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. And also even in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, it talks about there that before you put on the holy garments in your worship to God, therefore you shall wash his body with water. So they would have been very, very much aware of ceremonial cleansings or external washings that were done through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. We find that same kind of cleansing coming over, but more in a spiritual sense in 2 Corinthians 7.1, where it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of the filthiness of the flesh. The imagery there is the washing of the water and the cleansing of the water ceremonially. But here in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about an internal spiritual cleansing of the flesh. Psalm 24.4 kind of uses it this way. It says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who has not lifted up his soul to an idol and nor sworn deceitfully, this is the one who can come into the presence of the Lord. And the point is, the clean hands, again, not physical dirt, not just dirty hands from working outside, if you will, in the garden, but clean hands in the sense of spiritually clean. You've dealt with the sin in your life. And the hands were usually those means by which we often get in trouble, right? Our hands get us in trouble in a lot of ways. And so they talk about the clean hands. Isaiah 1 verse 15 says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make your prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. The hands represented the state of the soul. If the soul was clean, the hands were clean. If you had confessed your sins and you were right with God, then your hands were clean. This is important to understand. It's used in the New Testament this very way. In second, uh, or rather, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. He's not commanding everyone to lift up their hands physically. He's talking about the purity of life. The purity of your hands, which is a representation of your spiritual purity, that you have dealt with the sin in your life. Now, just for a moment, I want to give you a warning about this, because I think it's important to understand this. And since Mark's been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which deals very clearly about external religion versus internal purity and salvation, you already understand that in the culture that Jesus was teaching and the apostles were dealing with, they had a serious problem with external religion, external purity versus internal purity or righteousness. And with that said, I want to take you to a text for a moment, if you can follow with me, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This kind of puts it in place here as our Lord himself deals with this ceremonial washing that they were involved in. 
Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the uh, tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, he's not talking about what you and I think of, that whenever you come to dinner, you wash your hands and you would always expect your children to do, th do that. Whenever I was growing up, one of the things that was often said to me whenever I came to the table, did you wash your hands? And all that meant was, as I was playing outside, I was dirty, you needed to wash your hands so you could come to the dinner table. Here, this is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about an external washing. He's talking about a ceremonial washing that the Pharisees and the Jews of that day practice. And the more devout you were as a Jew, the more consistent you were in that process. Well, Jesus confronts them about another problem, and the problem was their hypocrisy. In verse 3, he said this to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? That's a powerful word. Because what he's saying is, because of your tradition of ceremonial washings and your tradition of Jewish legalism, you were disobeying the very laws of God. In fact, he brings up one of the problems in verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But Jesus says, I say to you, but rather he says, but you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God. Now, what are they talking about? What they were talking about is how they skirted their responsibility of taking care of their parents. It was an obligation all the way back to the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother, which required you to not only take care of them in their elderly age, but to provide for them, financially speaking, take care of them. And so what the Pharisees had provided for their own selves is a way out of that. And they had taught that, well, if you say that that money is a gift to God, then you don't have to give it to your parents. Well, if you're giving it to God and to the tabernacle and to the religious system of Israel, guess who you're giving it to? The Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of Israel. It was a way of them skirting their responsibility to obey God, to take care of their parents, but at the same time padding their pockets with more money. And so Jesus confronts them and says this, you have literally disobeyed the commandment of God to honor your father and your mother because you've created this tradition of man's rules and laws to do what you want to do. And he even says in verse 7, as he calls them hypocrites, he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? These people draw near to me by their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart, here it is, their heart is far from me. External worship, ceremonial worship, religion, external religion. But the word wash here in this text, when he, the, um, the Pharisees asked, why do your disciples not wash their hands? That particular ceremonial washing they're referring to was something that they believed had to be done before you partook of any food. And there was a particular kind of washing that you would run water down your hand. You would hold your hand facing toward the sky, allow water to come down from the fingertips all the way to the elbow. And supposedly it was to wash any defilement that was on your hand. They even believed, at least some of them taught, that there was a demon that could get on your hand in the middle of the night. That demon's name was Shibta. 
and he could get on your hand and you needed to have ceremonial washings to get the demon off your hand because if you didn't, whenever you ate, you could ingest the demon into you when you ate. So you went through this ceremonial washing where you would wash your hand upright. It would allow it to drip off the elbow, elbow, thereby not defiling the fingers again with the demon. If you will, the demon would drip off the elbow. And then you would turn your hands down to wash again and it would drip off your fingers. And then most Orthodox Jews would then wring their hands in a fist motion and then you would be done with your ceremonial washing before you could eat anything. And that was done before every single meal. And yet, it had nothing to do with the Word of God at all. Nothing to do with the Word of God. That's not what God was talking about at all. They made it all external instead of an internal cleansing of the heart. They even kept a water jar by the uh, dinner table for them it wasn't a dinner table like us but they had water jars there and they had a minimum amount of water that they always kept there that amounted to about a uh, one and a half eggs full would be the amount they would measure it by to make sure that they had their ceremonial washings conducted so Jesus is dealing with this problem where they are actually making everything external and their religion is all about external purity rather than internal purity And that's a serious problem. It can be an easy trap for all of us. We all can fall into this. And so often we find our own selves gauging our own holiness by a list of do's and don'ts, don't we? We have a list and we go down our list and we check it off one after the other. And we make a decision as to whether or not we are, quote, living a holy life based upon our do's and our don'ts. Especially when it comes to the world and the world system. It's easy to believe that you're not part of the world system just because you have a list of do's and don'ts. You don't dress a certain way. You don't act a certain way. You may not participate in certain forms of entertainment that the world has, and thereby you believe that you're okay with God and you're pure because you have completed your list there of do's and don'ts. And I've personally seen problems in this whenever families adopt a a long list of legalistic rules that they live by, and it ends up frustrating the children. There are barriers and fences and more fences erected and the children are frustrated by the series of legalistic laws that are created by the parents. On the other hand, I've seen the other problem where parents allow for license, where there's too much liberty granted and then there's participation in open doors for evil that is brought into the home. And what is true today, and it is for you and your family, and we're facing times that we've never faced before, 20 years ago, there's many things that we wouldn't even have to talk about or address anymore. But families today, especially with small children that they're raising, are raising children in the context of problems and you know, ungodliness of all kinds uh, today that is very difficult for families to navigate through. And some have a tendency to create a bunch of legalistic laws that they believe will protect their family. And I can tell you from firsthand experience and watching families go through this, listen, if you're not dealing with the heart and working on the heart of the issue, which is the heart, you're going to find out that your family and your children are not where you think they are whenever they finally get old enough to leave the home. You don't want to make it all about the external. The external is only one of the issues that we deal with, but it has to start with the heart. And that leads me to another thing about legalism. Legalism has become a serious problem among believers. 
because they believe by having legalism in their life that that's going to solve all the problems they have with their ungodly culture they live in. And what is legalism? Let me just give you a quick definition of it. There are three Three definitions because legalism affects a number of areas. The first is this. Legalism is believing that salvation can be earned by obedience. That's salvation issues. In other words, that's the Galatian heresy where you believe that you're going to be saved because you do certain things or you don't do certain things regarding the Mosaic law. That kind of legalism. But there's another kind of legalism that says that I'm saved by grace but I have to keep myself by doing this and not doing this or make myself acceptable to God or approved by God by doing certain things or not doing certain things. That is sanctification by legalism. And what we forget there is is that we're made right with God through Christ and that we're fully righteous and fully in favor with God through Christ and that it's not based upon our conduct that we're brought in favor to God. It's all through the work of Jesus Christ. But then there's the third legalism that I want to just deal with for a few moments this morning or this afternoon. And that is this. Legalism elevates man's rules above Scripture. That's the main problem I see so much today among even families in the church. Is that we create all of these rules like the Pharisees did, like the scribes did, like the elders of Israel did. And we believe that we're okay because we keep these rules. And we do okay. And that maybe... We're doing all right in our own holiness because of these rules. And we create man-made rules. And there's a number of categories you could look at when you think about that kind of legalism. The first is doctrinal legalism. And what I mean by that is this, is that we begin to insist that we're the only ones who have it right. And that everybody else who has it a little different than us are wrong and are out of step with God. Now I can speak for our reform community because I'm part of it. And I can tell you right now that there are a lot of lines being drawn in the sand and the lines are being filled with concrete. And a lot of people are staking their positions and they're holding their positions firm and they believe that they're right and they're better apt to be right with God because of their position theologically. We have to be very careful with that because there are certain graces given in the secondary issues even when it comes to doctrine. Whenever it comes to the gospel of Christ and the means of salvation, the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, those things that are non-negotiables that you can't move on because if you do move on them, you're going to end up in heresy or you're going to end up in a position where someone does not go to heaven or they end up going to hell like the Galatian heresy that Paul was dealing with. Those are non-negotiable issues. You don't move on that at all. But there are a variety of areas where you and I can have some grace with each other on. One of them is is eschatology. I mean, there's lots of debates today among Reformed community about eschatology. There's the post-mills, the ah-mills, the pre-mills, the historic pre-mills, the preterist, the semi-preterist, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, the pre-rat, the post-tribs. There's a whole other list of them. And people start, I'm I'm not kidding you, I have seen lines drawn where there is no fellowship anymore among other Reformed brothers because they may not be exactly where you are, eschatologically speaking. I had a family that came to our church many years ago now, and they, a wonderful family, and they were coming faithfully on Sunday morning, and um, they had me come over to their house and to grill me, really that's what happens in 
Reformed community, you usually as a pastor, when someone wants to come to your church, they want to take you home for a few moments and spend about three hours with you asking you what you believe about everything, which I'm perfectly fine with that. And we were doing really well. I mean, we were coming through the doctrines of grace. We were working our way through all of those wonderful uh, theology proper things about the sovereignty of God and the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then we got to eschatology. And he said, where are you with your eschatological views? And I said, well, I'm a historic premillennialist. And you could have seen all the blood drain out of his face. You would have thought I just said Jesus Christ isn't God or something like that. And I, and I knew right then that the cake and the coffee and all that we were enjoying was over. It was time to go on. It was done. They would never be back. And another one was that with the same family is that they said, well, do you have an evening service? I said, well, no, we don't. Well, we believe you should because it's the Lord's day. Well, listen, I'm all for that. If we had an evening service, I would be glad to do one. But our church is a little different. Most people drive an hour to church on Sunday morning. So it's an hour home and an hour back. So if we do an evening service, either they've got to stay at the church all day or either they're going to drive four hours on one Sunday. So we're trying to look at it from a different perspective and deal with it with our location issues. But they had drawn hard lines that were non-negotiable, that are not necessarily foundational in the Word of God. Listen, you're going to find believers all over the map on some of those things. And if you're going to draw hard lines, eventually what's going to happen is it's going to be you and maybe your wife, and you're going to have church. It's just going to be you. I mean, we're writing off people left and right. I mean, I deal with it all the time in our church where someone, I'll, I'll recommend maybe a book to read. Well, I can't read him. He said this. I said, really? That one thing, you wipe out everything he's ever said, and what he said was not necessarily a one of the main things about the gospel of Christ, and we just draw hard lines, doctrinal legalism. It is dangerous for a church, and it can destroy the, destroy the Reformed community and the people who love the Word of God. You've got to be extraordinarily careful with that. Just because you personally believe that you've got all your theological T's crossed and all of your theological I's dotted, and maybe you've got your commas and your punctuation marks all lined up in your theology, and there's nobody else in the entire world that could ever change your view, that doesn't mean that you can't have grace for somebody else that maybe isn't quite where you are, that hasn't arrived yet, that's still studying through it, that's still working through it, that maybe hasn't read Augustine or the Institutes of Calvin or maybe hasn't read a lot of the other books that maybe you have. I am so amazed sometimes how intolerant some of our Reformed brothers are of other people. We see it happening all the time. So we need some grace in this area. We need to practice grace in this area and recognize that one day when we finally get to heaven, I think a lot of our secondary issues that we've held to for so long are going to be corrected. And the Lord will take care of all of that in the end, won't he? And then also there's applied legalism you could call another area of legalism not only doctrinal legalism but applied legalism and this really refers to how you take literal rules that you create and you apply them in a situation to make yourself look holy or pure or righteous and then you begin to judge others based upon that standard that you've created we've had that problem also among people in church where they have their own idea of what 
uh, home worship looks like or even what they need to do through the week as far as their own commitment to Christ, as far as reading their Bible, how much they read, how much they pray. There's a danger whenever you have a group of people who desire to have prayer all the time in your church and then they start judging people and determining whether or not they're spiritual because they don't pray quite as much as you do. It happens all the time. We start criticizing the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel for their religious hypocrisy and their legalism and their self-righteousness, and then we end up doing the same thing. We end up practicing the same thing. You say, well, how do you dislodge that kind of legalism? Well, first of all, you recognize that you are where you are because of the grace of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, you understand that the gospel of Christ is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of grace. You are righteous with God. You are in perfect standing with God because of Jesus Christ. And frankly, it has nothing to do with your conduct as to whether or not you're right with God or not. Positionally speaking, as far as that is concerned, you are justified, made righteous in Christ through him and his word. And of course, that sanctification comes by the application of the word of God through the Holy Spirit's work in your life. By applying the word of God and the principles of God in your life. One author said it this way, our obedience must be grounded in the gospel. Sanctification is empowered by faith in the promises of God. We need to be reminded of our justification often and throughout our Christian lives. It's not just one of those things we think about in the past. We were justified. You're justified today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. Even if you fail today or tomorrow, as a believer, you're still made right with God through Christ. And that's what keeps us. That's what keeps us. Now, how do we avoid this legalism? How do we avoid this? Well, first of all, here's the important point that I'm making here by the topic that James brings up about cleanse your hands. Because he's talking about something that is actually internal, not external. The Jews were used to it being external. He says, no, no, no. It's internal. In fact, you have some Hebraic poetry going on in that verse when he says, cleanse your hands, sinners. And then he says, purify your hearts, double-minded. That's what they call Hebrew parallelism. In other words, the first sentence is interpreted by the second sentence. What he says by cleansing your hands means purify your hearts. That's what it means. Not just make your hands clean, get some soap, water. He means purify your hearts. And that's the first point you need to understand to avoid legalism is to know this. Number one, be careful not to make everything about the external. If you do that, you're, you're walking into a dangerous area. Because you can be very, very holy on the outside and very corrupt and evil on the inside. I mean, people can come to church, have smiles on their faces, and think it's the best thing that's ever happened to them on that day to be in church and all along be dealing with all kind of anger and hostility in their heart. You need to be careful not to make everything about the external. The heart is the issue. The heart is the issue. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20 says, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence. And then Proverbs 23, 19, Hear my son and be wise and guide your heart in the way. Other verses like Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9 says, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself. 
lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Even in Matthew 15, if you'll look at it again with me, Jesus reminds us of this very thing. Look at verse 10, Matthew 15, 10. He says, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes in the mouth defiles the man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles the man. In other words, it's not about eating something that's defiling, that goes into you and corrupts you. It's what's already in you is the problem. Chapter 15, verse 15, Peter answered and said to him, explain to us this parable. Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? In other words, external things, external religion, external ceremony is only external. It's just outside. It says nothing about what's going on in the heart. Nothing. He goes on and says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come out of the heart, and they defile the man. Then look at verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things that defile the man, but to eat with an unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus says it's not the externals. It's not keeping a whole bunch of laws that makes you righteous. Now, how do we get to the heart of that matter? He talks about the heart being the issue. How do you get to the heart of the matter, which is the heart of man? Well, first of all, you need to understand what the heart is. He's not talking about the beating heart, the blood pumping heart. He's not talking about even as some like to say, well, this is just the inner you. He's talking about the mind. He's talking about the thinking as Jesus himself even said, out of the heart proceed evil what? Thoughts. That's where your mind is. In other words, it's your worldview. It's understanding everything through the way you think. That's your heart. Who you are is what you think and how you think. The devil understood this from the beginning. Whenever he tempted Eve in the garden, he did not just address her emotions. He did not just address her flesh. He addressed her thinking. He went to her and says, he said to her, has God really said? Think about it, Eve. Think about what God's doing here. He's keeping all of this from you. Why wouldn't he let you have some of this tree here? Obviously, he wants to keep something good from you because if you were to eat this tree, you would become like him. In other words, the devil was asking Eve to think about it. Or to question in her mind the things about she already knew about God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, when it says there that we are to resist the devil, it says resist him steadfast in the faith. The word thee is there, that's a definite article, meaning that we are to resist the devil firm, solid, unmovable in the faith. The the faith refers to the content of the revelation of God, what you know, what you believe in the word of God. That's why Paul says in chapter 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He did not say be transformed by feeling better about yourself. He did not say be transformed because you go to a great church and you feel goosebumps. 
He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4.22 says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Colossians 3.10 says that we are to have the new man who is renewed in knowledge. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 and 5 talks about the strongholds that we fight against. And he says we are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And everything, every thought is to be brought into captivity with Christ. It is consistent through the Old and the New Testament that the only way the heart can be dealt with is dealing with the mind. The thought process, the worldview. The reason why we have so much trouble with believers today understanding biblical things is because they don't think biblically. Their mind is not saturated with the things of God. Their mind has been saturated with worldly ideologies and philosophies. And you have to work your way through all of that and deal with all of that before you even get someone to think biblically. Everything has to go through the grid of biblical sufficiency and biblical accuracy. And for both of us, or all of us in here today, I would add this. How you do that is this. First of all, how do you get to a point where you have a biblical worldview and your heart and your mind is thinking biblically and accurately so that you can have a mind that is not filled with legalism and external religion and you're dealing with the heart of the matter, which is your heart? First of all, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. In other words, don't take it for granted what someone says. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. In other words, you believe Jesus is God. Do you know why you believe Jesus is God? Do you know where in the Bible it says that? You say you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Do you know why you believe that? Do you know where in the Bible it says that? Do you understand why that is true? All of those things are important to understand and to believe all the way down to every single thing you believe about God and Christ and the Christian life. And then secondly, know why a certain view of morality is right and why you believe it is right biblically. You will be surprised today how many Christians don't think biblically about moral issues. This is the reason why we have so much waffling back and forth on what we would consider some of the most clear passages of the Bible regarding morality. And yet it's amazing to me how many Christians will capitulate on homosexuality or abortion or the things that we see as the ills and immoral issues of our society. And they'll just say, oh no, there's other options here. Or maybe God doesn't really mean that by that word or that text. The Southern Baptist Convention is facing another crisis in this next month. They're coming together in June again to talk about whether or not women can be preachers in the church or pastors in the church. You say, well, I thought that was settled. No, it's not settled because they've eliminated the authority and the veracity of the Word of God. And yet the Bible is abundantly clear. I mean, you can debate the passages in Timothy. You can debate the passages in Corinthians if you desire to do so. But I grant you, there's not one single woman who can meet the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3. Not one. You know why? Because they're supposed to be the husband of one wife. That eliminates any woman being a pastor. Now, I'm not saying women aren't smart. We all know that they are. In fact, my wife's smarter than me. We're not saying that women can't think biblically and can't teach other women and children in the church. We're not saying that. But the Bible's given clarity on this issue, and yet we just throw all of that out 
And we ask the question, as the devil asked Eve, has God really said? Or does he really mean? So you need to ask yourself a question. Do I know what I believe and why I believe it? And when it comes to moral issues, do I know why I believe these issues to be this way? And then number three, take every opportunity, and I mean this with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, Take every opportunity to destroy the evolutionary worldview that's being pushed on your children. Eliminate it. Every time it comes up, make sure you correct it. Every time they see it, hear it, listen to it, are confronted with it, deal with it. That's the satanic attack on your children's worldview, your biblical worldview. Don't let that skip out and be missed. And the raising of your children. Number four, surround yourself and your family with good Bible teachers and preachers. In other words, we have um, a lot of access today to that. I couldn't say just listen to anybody because the internet is full of teachers that are not solid and preachers that are not solid and are not right. But at the same time, you here today especially know those that are good. You understand that. You fill your mind and your heart with those that are teaching the Word of God accurately and handling, handling the Word of God right. And then number five, avoid worldly influences that are contrary to your biblical worldview and let your children know why. Don't just say, hey, mom and daddy say this is the way it is. Let them know why you believe this is not right. Explain to them why from the scripture that this is not right. Let that biblical worldview that you have become their biblical worldview. That whenever they go out of your home and they leave your house, they have the same grid to look through at all of the world and its culture. And then number six, make the church, make the church and its ministry central in your family's life. That should be non-negotiable, non-negotiable. In other words, if your children are asking you, Daddy, are we going to church this Sunday? You need to rethink your position because it should be already assumed. When Sunday comes, it's the Lord's day. We go to church. That's what we do. And you know, today, sadly, that's been minimized in some cultures. It's like it doesn't really matter that much because since COVID especially, we have live stream church. And there are a number of churches that I actually know personally that their attendance was cut in half since COVID. And they haven't recovered yet. Some churches that were running as many as 1,000 are down to 500. There were some churches that were in Lexington, where I live, that were considered sound churches at that time, and yet whenever this happened and live stream started, half the church hasn't come back. And most of them, sadly, are the young families. And I'm asking the question, where did they go? It might, might be indicative that they never were believers to begin with, but I believe there's another problem. And the other problem is live stream church where people believe it's sufficient. I don't have to go tonight. I don't have to go tomorrow. I don't have to go Sunday morning because I can just watch it on TV. Listen, if you have health problems and you have disabilities and you can't come, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. Whenever you're homesick, it's a great thing to have. But it does not and cannot and will not ever substitute for this. It can't. It's impossible. God did not ordain church to be everybody sitting behind a couch looking at a TV screen. Because there's no interaction. There's no one another's. 
There's no accountability. There's no Lord's Supper. There's no church discipline. There's none of that going on in Internet church. I remember not too long ago, I was talking to a young couple that were looking for a church. And the young lady said, I like Internet church. I said, God doesn't. And she just about fell out on the floor. What do you mean God doesn't like it? I said, number one, that's not the church. That's a TV program or that's an Internet preacher preaching. And uh, I think there's a problem, and it's a growing problem, because what we're doing is we're saying, in essence, that the church is not essential, that it is negotiable. Let me explain something to you, okay? I've seen this happen many, many times, where parents believe it's not a big deal if I go or I don't go or if I'm here or if I'm not here. It is a huge deal, because your children, your family, your wife are affected by the corporate worship of God's people. There is a grace that occurs here that I personally cannot explain, that cannot be explained by anybody else that I've ever talked to, that affects your family. It affects your family. For them to come and see other people worship God, listen to the Word of God, actively engage with what God says, pray, worship through song, listen to sermons, respond positively to what God says, Children and adults see that and respond to that. And yet if we begin to think that church is not essential, you can bank on it. We will not have a biblical worldview and the heart of the matter will not be dealt with. You will have an external, externalized religion. I told a family not too long ago because they weren't going to a church. They were watching church on TV. And I told them this to their face. I said, you're creating occupants for hell. Your children are going to go to hell. And they look at me like I'm crazy because I believe the church is essential. It's absolutely essential. Jesus died for his church. The Bible set it up. It's clear how we're to do this. God doesn't say, hey, you know, well, well, you can do it if you want to. If it doesn't work out, no big deal. No. He said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, as you see the day approaching, what day? The coming of Christ. Why should we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? The main verb, the first verse before that, promote good works in one another. That's the main verb. And we do that by coming together as a body, encouraging one another, edifying one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, and all the other one another's in the New Testament. So you need to make sure you have all of those things in order to have a biblical worldview and dealing with the heart of the matter to avoid this legalism. And also, I would add this, and this is not the case here, but there are some who would listen who need to hear this. If you're in a watered-down, compromised church, get out. Leave. Don't hang around. Don't say, well, I've got good friends there. Listen, you are putting your own personal sanctification at risk and you're putting the eternal destiny of your children at risk, get out, get somewhere where it's solid. And hold firm to the word of God and avoid that. Well, let me finish up here and close out with this. So how do I avoid this legalism and avoid making everything external in my life as a Christian? Well, first of all, as I told you, be careful not to make it all external. Understand the heart is the issue. You get the word of God in the heart properly interpreted and practice it and live it and then number two make sure the laws and the rules and the principles you follow 
are well grounded in Scripture and clear commandments or principles of Scripture. In other words, don't make it up. All right? Don't create unnecessary rules for your own family and your own children that are not founded in the Word of God. The conscience is developed by the Word of the living God. And then number three, when you draw lines for purity in your family and life, make sure you know biblically why you do it. You need to know that. You need to be able to explain that. Why do I do what I do? Why do I not do what I don't do? And then here's the last one. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. Folks, it can creep into all of us. Where we come and we're not dealing with the heart of the issue, which is the sin inside of our heart and in our minds, and before long, we're bumping along, keeping the rules, keeping the rules, keeping the rules. And we look good on the outside, and our family looks good on the outside, but inside we're full of corruption and sin, unrepentant sin, as far as that is concerned. We need to make sure that we avoid all of those things. And that will help us to make sure we keep our hands clean and pure. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I do pray, God, that you would help us all. We all struggle with this. It's so easy to fall into the trap of just making sure we keep the rules. But Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to repent of that evil way that's in our heart, to repent of those sins that are prevalent there in our minds And that we would be desirous of following you not only externally, but most importantly, internally. That we would be moved in desiring holiness and purity from the inside. That our hearts would be moved and empowered by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us all to have a biblical mindset, a biblical worldview. Fill our hearts and our minds with your word. And Lord God, help us to remember these things in this dark culture in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.